Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Jeff Hobbs tracked four bright and ambitious high school seniors who were attending two very different schools in Los Angeles through the 2016 to 2017 school year. He went with them to classes, dances, sports games, and graduations, visited their families, teachers, and friends, and spent time hanging out and talking with the boys. He's written a book about them called Show Them You're Good, a portrait of boys in the city of angels the year before college. And it's his second book from Scribner's about the rites of passage from boyhood to manhood. The earlier one, The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace, a brilliant young man who left Newark for the Ivy League, is an award-winning bestseller about his college roommate, an African-American Yale graduate who was murdered. Both of those books bring Jeff Hobbs to our show right now. Welcome. Oh, hi, Leonard. Thank you so much for uh, for having me on. I'm really thankful to be here. The, the heading of a review of your book in the New York Times is, the future looks very different on opposite, opposite sides of, of Los Angeles. How did you meet the, the high school seniors that you write about? Um, oh, yeah. Uh, thank you for mentioning that review. Um, so You had to be very pleased. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's nice for this, uh, um, odd little high school book and my editor really wishes I would stop describing it that way, but, um, <laughs> uh, that's kind of how the idea started. So, um, you mentioned, I, I wrote a book, uh, about a really dear friend of mine who, uh, who was killed called the short and tragic life of Robert Peace. And, um, you know, I didn't really expect anybody to read it, frankly, because uh, it's a hard story. It's a sad story, but uh, a few people did. Mm-hmm. And and then something very terrifying happened, which is schools started reaching out to me and asking me to come uh, talk, maybe visit a class or, or give, a, give an assembly speech. And um, you can probably already tell two minutes in that uh, I was never meant to speak in public or mm-hmm. Or really speak in general. So, uh, You're doing fine. Um, <laughs> well, anyway, I, I uh, uh, my wife kind of kicked me in the butt and said, "This is not an obligation. This is a privilege, and just say yes to everybody and and figure out how to talk and and go." Uh, so I did, and um, you know, schools from the Ivy League to juvenile halls, just uh, you know, whether speaking to hundreds of people in an auditorium or, or just having lunch with two or three kids um, having these pretty meaningful conversations. And, and what happened is there's something about Rob Peace, uh, and I'd, I'd love to uh, speak more about him, but there was something about his story we that will. kind of empowered. We will. We'll get to him. Uh, yeah, we have time. Um, empowered have- young people to, to start sharing their own stories uh, with me and with each other, whether in the form of, of a question or a response. And, and I was sort of hearing all these pretty powerful individual testimonials about uh, just coming of age and, and the challenges and different spaces in this passage in life. And I sort of, you know, I carry those home with me and um, walking my dog and being with my kids uh, and started to have an idea you know, maybe there's some way in book form uh, without using a device like sports or um, or what have you, uh, just 
sharing what it looks like and feels like to be 17 years old in America. And, um, and so I reached out to maybe some teachers I knew and, and just cold calling schools. Uh, and, and, uh, and these two schools, uh, for whatever reason, decided to give me, you know, let me in their doors and, and start meeting students. Um, and so I met, met these really, uh, pretty special two groups of kids in, in South LA and Beverly Hills. But it also allows you to talk about things like immigration, privilege, uh, <laughs> growing up in a difficult family. Um, you only interviewed boys. Did you uh, try to select boys with different backgrounds and life experiences on purpose? Um, sure. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, it was sort of the thing I love most maybe about teenagers in particular is that they, uh, um, you know, they see through your screens and they let you know what they think. So when I first sat with the groups, my line was, um, and there's truth to it, but I said, you know, I don't want you to feel like you're representing your race or your class or your neighborhood. I, I really, as much as it's possible, would like you guys to represent yourselves and um, again, there's truth to that. That's why I was there. But, um, you know, they leaned back in their chairs and are kind of like, man, you chose one school in the richest district in the city and one school in the poorest district. You know, that's not arbitrary. You're, <laughs> you're after more than just ourselves. Um, so, uh, like I said, with, with these young people, it, it gets real pretty fast. Um, and, did, and you you, be, did you... Did you call your book, show them you're good uh, because the boys feel pressured to prove their worth? Uh, yeah, there's all that pressure. Uh, and so, you know, the backbone of this book, these are boys going through their senior year of high school. And the backbone is the college admissions process. Uh, again, mm -hmm. boys coming from two very different schools, very different neighborhoods, though they're not that far apart, a few miles in Los Angeles. Um, and the title actually came from a boy um, in the school in South LA, not in Compton proper, but just north. Most of the boys live in Compton and the school is called uh, Animo Pat Brown. I'll just call it APB because it's fewer hmm. syllables. Pat Brown, um, former and, governor of California. Uh, exactly. Um, which, they they know, call the area Florence, Florence Firestone, don't they? Uh, Near yeah, Compton? those are the cross streets. Yeah, hmm. um, yeah. There, there's a lot of little neighborhoods hmm. wedged in um, that vast area. Um, but Tio, one of the boys who who I'm really fond of, was talking about skateboarding, uh, which hmm. is often what he talked about. Um, and you know, he just said, "You you show up at a skate park and." You know, everyone there makes fun of you and tells you to get lost until you show them you're good. Um, and again, he was talking about skateboarding, but uh, I don't know. Those words stuck with me. Well, he had a four-point uh, grade like average. So he, he had a four-point grade average, so I guess uh, he's showing them he's good in other ways. Did Were they okay with uh, this older guy hanging out with them uh, in all these different ways? 
uh, two? Um, I think they were because they kept coming back um, every week. Uh, and so the research you, you mentioned, I went to you know, football games and dances and, and lots and lots of classes and um, hung out in their homes, family dinners with with parents. But the uh, the meat of the research, let's call it, um, were these sort of roundtable discussions. We would have them once or twice a week throughout the year, um, sit in the classroom together without teachers. And um, I just asked them what's what's going on. Maybe I'd have prompts about current events or things going on in school. The, uh, the presidential election was a big deal. This was the 16, 17 school year. Um, Did any of them support Trump? Uh, you know, in Beverly Hills, quietly, uh, I believe so. Hmm. Um, um, but the other thing is I brought food, uh, lots of food. <laughs> might have had something to do with them coming every week. Meanwhile, you had to spend a lot of time immersed in the minutia of college applications, after-school activities, playing video games. Then, well, let's talk a bit about that school, Animo Pat Brown Charter. High school. It's a charter high school in a very poor neighborhood, tuition free. Uh, now, LA ranks fifth from last in spending per pupil. Uh, and this school is ranked 207th within California. So, um, is it a good school? Uh, I really uh, I think it's a tremendous school. Um, again, they years before they'd invited me to do a book group there. Um, actually, the assistant principal was the resident advisor to a girl I went out with in college. <laughs> um, so that was the connection. Um, and yeah, I had a little book group. Um, and the school is pretty young. It, it began, I believe, in 2006 with uh, 150 freshmen. Um, and it moved around a lot because it's a charter, so different spaces until they finally um, got their own building, which was a retrofitted mattress factory, I believe, um, on, a, on a pretty quiet street. A very small building, which means they, they don't have lockers, they, they don't have sports teams. There's a lot they don't have, but uh, what they do have um, are... Uh, really great teachers who, uh, you know, have the uh, bandwidth to really connect uh, with their students. There, there's a period each day called guidance that's, you know, just devoted to um, seeing what's going on with their students. And that's harder with young men. And we can get into that. You know, it's sure. pretty tough for young guys to admit that something's not going well, you know, uh, well, it's all the, good as the mantra. You mentioned that it's in Compton, which uh, many people know about uh, from rap music and also the straight out of Compton, the movie, uh, an area with a high rate of crime and, and gang violence. So um, is this school a, a kind of a sanctuary? What happens when these kids who wear uniforms leave the building? Um, 
Yeah, uh, you know, the, the very first page of the book uh, just describes a young man, Tio, actually, who I've already mentioned with his skateboard, um, uh, by skateboard, going from his home on Juniper Street to his school about a, about a mile north, um, and wearing his uniform, just kind of a khaki navy shirt, uh, muted color binary uh, and you know when when he was a in fifth grade so I guess 11 years old he you know someone was shot in the head right in front of him when he was going home from school um, and what he said was and sometimes you know police will stop him because he's a kid on a skateboard and, and mostly you know tell him to keep going to school and whatnot. But he said, you know, 99 transits out of 100 are uneventful. And, and I know people in different neighborhoods and it's pretty chill. Uh, one out of 100, you know, someone gets in your face and, and you have to say, you don't do that stuff or, or again, police. But so he said he, you know, keeps his head up for the prospect of the one, but, uh, you know, mainly is being himself in the context of the 99. Jeff Hobbs is my guest today on Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming at WBAI.org. We're talking about two of his books. The uh, most recent one is Show Them Your Good, a portrait of boys in the City of Angels uh, the year before college. And uh, his uh, previous book, which was uh, an award-winning bestseller, the short and tragic life of Robert Peace, a brilliant young man who left Newark and the for the Ivy League. Now, Carlos is uh, also one of the boys that you spend a fair amount of time with. He's a younger son of undocumented delivery workers. Um, he spent kindergarten and first grade speaking only Spanish, not understanding anything that his teachers said, and yet he was passed along from grade to grade despite of being incapable to do the work for a while. And now he is, uh, he's going to attend Yale like his brother. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's going. Is it a miracle? Uh, I wouldn't, he definitely would not call it that. Um, yeah, when he, uh, before he started kindergarten, they lived in sort of a fruit picking community in mm. Washington state where he didn't really, hear English and then then they moved to uh, South LA and I mean th there's lots of ESL programs all around but his parents decided to you know send him on the regular English track uh, not for any real progressive reason that I gathered they just thought you know he's an American kid he should go to school as an American kid so uh, kindergarten, first grade, a lot of second grade was just gibberish, and and then uh, you, you know just the tremendous feat of language learning. Uh, he went through that, and uh, by fifth grade he was in honors classes. And um, as far as the term miracle, um, and we're kind of giving away the end of the book by saying he went to Yale, but uh, that's okay. Helped by the uh, fact that I his brother him, uh, went to Yale. 
I'm assuming uh, that their parents couldn't help them. Yeah. So how were Carlos and his brother able to navigate complex college admission forms, financial aid forms, uh, each with their own deadlines? Did people and all, and did everybody have expectations that Carlos would do well because his brother uh, went to Yale on a full scholarship? Uh, yeah, he was navigating all those pressures. I mean, there's the the base pressure of being, uh, you know, a very high performing student in in a um, you know a, a neighborhood where where a lot of kids struggle with with language and and just the the forms and the financials and the deadlines of college admissions. Um, uh, he and his brother had each other. Um, I, th I think that was probably the most important thing, you know, uh, and but the, I asked him, it, yeah, one, go ahead. sorry, oh, I, no, just, go ahead, I asked him, I think he was asked often, uh, going through high school and, and, you know, getting the grades and, and having these prospects, he was asked a lot about his parents, you know, what's the, what's the secret sauce? What's the secret that you guys have that nobody else has? And, and, some kids didn't like him or resented him, you know, thought he, mm -hmm. he kind of had it made because of his brother and all those pressures. And, and his response was just that there was no secret sauce. His parents read to him. They had family dinners. They, uh, they, they had high expectations, but there were no strings attached to those. But despite all of this, uh, at the same time he was completing challenging classwork and college applications, wasn't he a so-called dreamer applying for protection from deportation under DACA, the Deferred Action for, for Childhood Arrivals Program? Uh, how scared was the family? Was the family in constant fear of ICE showing up? Uh, he seemed, again, this was 2016 where where. Um, that was, uh, yeah, that was very forefront at the school and mm. and in the country. And he was always so low-key about it um, when I asked. Um, and I asked for different reasons. I mean, the main one, by virtue of him volunteering and putting himself in this book, I, I you know, I didn't want to put him in any danger uh, with this kind of very... Uh, public uh, recounting mm. of his life. Do you hope? Um, do you hope Stephen Miller he, reads his book? <laughs> uh, he's from Los Angeles, I, I believe. Yes. Uh, uh, well, anyway, let's talk about the other school, Beverly know, Hills High School. Make it onto his back. Beverly Hills High School has been featured in many films and TV shows. James Stewart danced at the Beverly Hills High School gym in It's a Wonderful Life, and there was that long-running TV series, Beverly Hills 90210, which gave the impression that all of its students are wealthy and privileged. Was that the case with the uh, the boys that you bonded with? Uh, definitely not, and... And largely in that student body, I would say uh, not, uh, mainly because, you know, there's a huge private sector of education in Los Angeles and, and a lot of Beverly Hills families have uh, access to that sector. So um, uh, there's a lot of families who 
struggle pretty mightily in order to maybe rent apartments in Beverly Hills. There, there's kind of a there's the big houses in this area called the flats, and then that's in the north side, and um, the south side is is mostly apartment complexes. So, I mean, one of the kids I spent this time with named Owen, a, a really bright kid. Uh, his father is in the very top echelon of Hollywood, creating TV shows. Uh, you know, Famous actor. Lives in an off nice house. Um, and you don't name his father, but the re the reviews have. Can I say uh, it, Christopher yeah, it, Lloyd? It, it's it's not not hard to figure it out, I guess. So, so he's finance. Go ahead. <clears throat> oh, he created the show Modern Family, so hmm. he does pretty hmm. well. Now the other boy was Chinese Jewish. Um, his parents moved to a small apartment within the Beverly Hills school district. It's interesting that these kids are going to public school. The other kids were going to a charter school, uh, but uh, they they moved to uh, the smaller place so that they could uh, uh, send him to uh, the Beverly Hills school. Is that it? Uh, exactly. They, they worked pretty hard to uh, to live in a, um, in a in a pretty cramped condo so that he could go through this Beverly Hills school system. Wasn't uh, John constantly reminded of the sacrifice that his parents had made for him? How did that affect him? Uh, he, he had a lot of friction with his parents and um, partly be, because of what you just mentioned, just there's a lot of pressure there to, to perform and, and kind of live up to these sacrifices being made on, on his behalf. Um, you know, again, living in a apartment versus, you know, a home with a yard 10 miles away. Um, and also his mother uh, grew up in China and uh, um, he uh, struggled with her expectations and, and she was very, uh, very involved with his academics and oversight I once he said once that when he was in middle school someone asked him if he'd ever read battle hymn of the tiger mother the uh, Amy Chua book about mm -hmm. um, kind of a celebration of, of uh, Chinese intensive parenting and, and he said I don't have to read that book because I am living <laughs> but uh, you know his story to me is, is kind of realizing during this particular passage in his life that a lot of the friction that exists between parents and their children comes from love, uh, which sounds kind of fuzzy when you say it, but yeah. to witness, well, the, it, witness the him parents wrap his head around that uh, was powerful. The parents want their kids to succeed, and uh, in the case of Owen, his parents were already successes, so he perhaps had uh, was the most conflicted about all of that. Were, were, the, were the boys comfortable with your portraits of them? Were, were there things that they asked you not to include in the book? Uh, things not to include. They were pretty open. Um, uh, I would say the, the kids at APB in South LA, at the end of the year, we, we were kind of wrapping up and, and I was asking that question. Just I'm, I'm here 
uh, let me know if anything's sensitive. I mean, there's stories about uh, the alcoholism of parents and, and um, uh, you know, there's real stuff. Yeah. And, yeah, they, they all basically said uh, just write what I said. It's interesting that uh, the, the the boys from Beverly Hills School were expected to move to top-tier schools, but the boys from the charter school were not, and yet, for different reasons, they, they all did. Uh, can you draw any morals or conclusions from your research, uh, or is each boy's story unique? Uh, I would definitely unique i mean the the challenge of this sort of work that i do is is you're drawn to a place and you don't know who you're going to meet or what you're going to see or how you'll be received and and you're looking for those details that make each person uniquely themselves whether it's to on his skateboard or or uh, um john and his piano and his bike rides or, or what yeah. have you but you're also looking for the the elements that are absolutely universal um universal longings and and family and, and racism and classism and you know most of the work is just trying to fit those together and it's very clumsy work and and it's really fun work um and not every boy succeeded and that's a tricky word success because it, it means very yeah. different things for different people but i, I mean Have one kept point, in that APB didn't make it to a mm-hmm. four-year school and, and that was hard to watch have you kept in touch have, have they been affected by the coronavirus uh i have yeah we 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 haven't gotten physically together in a while because of that but uh, yeah we we keep in touch and and they were all very involved in the actual writing of the book um which was fun kind of going once they're in college going over things they did and said in high school which you know on one level was very recent and on a, another level felt like ages ago for them um but uh yeah no one's i mean besides colleges and not necessarily being able to uh, go to school their senior years. No one's been directly affected by the virus itself. I mean, they're all, I have they're to, all doing well. I have to take a little break. When we come back, we will talk about the other book, okay? This is yeah, Leonard Lopez at Large. Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org.
From the break. Now, normally our halfway music is something that we pick because it relates to the particular topic of the show. But the music we just heard, the song I, I Couldn't See It by the Sweethearts of the Psychic Rodeo, actually relates to our show in a different way because it features the lead vocals and guitar playing of our executive producer, Jesse Lent, who, who has a parallel career as a music producer. And he joins us now by phone under refreshingly different circumstances than usual. Hello, Jesse. Congratulations on the album. I think it sounds great. Thanks so much, Leonard. And it's it's such a thrill to be here under uh, these different circumstances. So uh, this is your band, the Sweethearts of the Psychic Rodeo. Uh, we should tell uh, the listeners that Sweethearts is spelled with a Z. So where does that name come from? Yes, the band is me and my uh, co-frontman, co-lead singer. It's both of us singing on the track. That's me on lead vocals that you just heard and Brady O singing harmony. But we both, uh, he, he sings lead on some of the songs on the record. The name comes from uh, some BAI listeners might even remember. I had a residency uh, up the street from the station, actually, this is going back a few years, 2016, uh, at a place called Hank Saloon, a dive bar on Atlantic Avenue called the Psychic Rodeo. And why some BAI listeners might remember is when I started hosting my show, Trump Watch, I moved uh, the residency. We got offered a residency right on the ground floor of where BAI is located at 388 Atlantic in the Brooklyn Commons. And so it was a music show and comedy and performance art. The psychic rodeo name was just something that signified wanting to uh, wanting to just have it be eclectic and different and but also sort of a, a reverence for the past. Uh, the, re the residency is where Brady and I ended up playing together and sort of forming the band and, uh, and, a, and a group of musicians. And then there's obviously, you might know, a famous Birds record, the one Birds record that Graham Parsons is on, their sort of alt-country classic called The Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Mm -hmm. So we combined The Psychic Rodeo and The Sweetheart of the Rodeo, and we ended up with... Uh, with the sweethearts of the rodeo of the, although the I definitely of the psychic rodeo. Yes. Although I definitely hear the beach boys and what we just listened to. I understand that you played a number of instruments on the record, bass, drums, guitar. And you told me that most of the vocal harmonies were done live on the same music because you wanted to capture that kind of beach boy sound. In the same microphone. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a recording technique that not a lot of bands seem to do anymore certainly not the ones that i know of or read about currently you know it's the difference between each band member just going in separately and recording their vocals or both of you live on the same mic uh and you both really have to nail the harmonies so it's difficult but the beach boys did it like that crosby stills and nash and Young did it like that. Uh, Simon Garfunkel, a little band called The Beatles, did it like that. There's a certain magic that comes when there's two voices combining 
in a real space in real time that uh, I, I feel like you can't really copy just by layering as far as the multitude of, of, of instruments. Yes. I, 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 you know, Brady and I sometimes live, we play with a full band. Sometimes we play duo with him on keys and me on guitar on the record. I'm also playing bass, drums, percussion, uh, really everything you're hearing other than the horns that are on a couple of the tracks. Uh, it, it, it's just Brady or, or myself and uh, other, uh, although I should say, if people check out the album, a couple, two of the songs are the great Dave Villano, who, who I play in a band called the Monte Vista with, just to, to give Dave the credit because he sounded great. But for the rest of the record, I produced the album. And sometimes the hardest thing about a producer, about being a producer, is conveying exactly the kind of sound you want from the musician. And sometimes it's easier, I've found, if you can play it yourself, just to play it yourself. Now, your album is called The Originals. Uh, where can listeners find it? Uh, can they uh, can they download it? They can. It's available on iTunes. Um, it's also uh, streaming everywhere. You might, if you stream it at Spotify or Apple Music, uh, wherever you stream music, it's available. You can download it on iTunes. On iTunes, you can also download it uh, on SoundCloud. So, for those of you who are getting the uh, the Leonard Lopez at Large podcast on SoundCloud, just type in the Sweethearts with a Z, and it should uh, it should pop right up. But people have to pay for it. You've generously offered to send the next ten listeners who show their support for WBAI a free download of the album, uh, in addition to uh, another. A fun drive gift that we're we're uh, offering them. So uh, let's talk about that. We're offering them the uh, a copy of the book that we're discussing today and your album. Yeah, the next ten people who sign up uh, to become BAI buddies, you, you know, if it's a day like today where we're giving away the book, that you know, if if all ten people are today, or if it's on a different, if it's tomorrow too. Just know that that uh, the offer that I'm making it won't affect your any other offers. You're this is an add-on, as we call it. You will get in addition. But yeah, as as my way of saying thanks for all the listeners who are hearing this right now, and and the Leonard Lopate community that I feel so proud to be a part of. That you're giving me this space to talk about this record that I have been working on for a few years. You know, th this really is a labor of love. So the next uh, the next 10 people to uh, contribute to the station in the name of Leonard Lopate at large uh, will get a free download of the record. I will email that over to you. Uh, you know, this is the era of music right now, Leonard. Eventually we might make some vinyl, but right now the album only exists mm -hmm. in the ether, so to speak, in the Internet. But I would be delighted to send it to you. And honestly, if you have an email address, you can receive a music download if, if anyone's uh, threatened by the technology. Very easy. I'll just I'll send it over to you, and it'll magically show up, and you'll be able to listen to it. And people who we I don't have a lot of time to talk about this because I really want to get back to my guests. But people who become BAI buddies uh, that's people who become who contribute ten dollars or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on the show it gives us uh, it allows us to. Uh, to plan for the future, if they uh, they will get a, a hard copy, a free copy of Jeff Hobbs' book. Show them your good, a portrait of boys in the city of angels, the year before college. So they have to call 
516-620-3602 or go to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two, WBAI.org. Um, anything else we want to say uh, other than WBAI relies totally on the generosity of our listeners. So um, during this time of uh, financial panic because of the pandemic, uh, we really do need a strong show of support. What else, Jesse, before I go back to my guest? <laughs> well, let me first again just say it's it's been so great to, to have this chance to talk about my new record. I want to just again say the next 10 people, whether it's BAI, buddy, however you contribute, if it's in the name of Leonard Lopate uh, at large and you leave an email address, I will send you a free download of my record for everyone else who wants to check it out. The album is called The Originals. It's by the Sweethearts of the Psychic Rodeo. That's the Sweethearts with a Z. This is uh, the executive producer of Leonard Lopez at large, Jesse Lent, talking, uh, coming to you with something a little different today. Uh, and so this will be in addition to any other gift you're getting, like Leonard said, uh, uh, you know, the, the Jeff Hobbs book or anything else. And uh, thank you all for your support. And the Jeff Hobbs book comes to anyone who becomes a BAI buddy for $10 or more. It comes out of your credit card or your uh, your whatever whatever uh, you, you prefer for the money to come out of. Uh, I'm going to get back to, to Jeff uh, Hobbs. His books that we're discussing are Show Them Your Good, a portrait of boys in the City of Angels the year before college, and also The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace, a brilliant young man who left Newark for the Ivy League both available from Scribner's. Now, the um, the Robert Peace book isn't it being made into uh, uh, into a film? Uh, as far as I know, it's sort of in that. It's process. in the process with some really really good people whom I've met. The uh, actor and director Chiwetel Ejiofor. Uh, you might. Uh, he's well known for 12 Years a Slave, among many other films. Mm. Really smart, really good guy um, is is writing and directing that. And your wife, Rebecca Hobbs, is involved in the production as well, I understand. Now, um, why did you choose to disclose the trajectory of Rob's life in your title, The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace? Weren't you giving a lot away? Uh, I you you even so. throw in the fact that he went from Newark to Yale. Yeah, so I didn't choose that title, and um, I was sort of thinking of much simpler, shorter titles. And uh, what my editor thought, who, who's a tremendous uh, person and a tremendous thinker, uh, he thought that for a book that, as I said before, is, is really hard and, and pretty sad that you owe your reader um, a little bit of a heads up as far as what they're getting into. That His father was in prison for many years. Was he able to stay involved in Rob's life in any way? Or, and didn't Rob yeah. work for years unsuccessfully on his father's defense? Uh, yeah, that, that's all very... Um, central to his story. Um, his father was uh, arrested and later convicted for a double murder when Rob was mm -hmm. seven years old. Um, and 
um, Rob sort of unbeknownst to really anybody in his life uh, except his mother, um, but unbeknownst to his friends and, and his teachers, uh, really devoted a lot of his time and an awful lot of his spirit to to freeing his father. He firmly believed he was innocent and um, that he did not get a fair trial because he did not have money, and, uh, and Rob was never able to do that. And, uh, um, and his father passed away in 2006 when, when Rob was 26 years old. His father used to call our dorm room when we were roommates in college, and, and, uh, and I would talk to him. You know, It was before cell phones, really, and voicemails, so you actually took messages for people. Um, and he was always really gracious on the phone. In, in a way, Rob uh, could have also been a subject of, the, of your new book uh, because um, he wound up getting a full scholarship to attend Yale despite all of the, the hardships uh, of his life. When you first met him, what was your impression of him? Did he hide uh, all of the, those facts about his life? Uh, yeah, when I, I first met him the first day of freshman year move-in day, at Yale, um, and with kind of an awkward hand slap, head nod, uh, while my parents were futzing around. Um, and at that point, all I knew about him was that he had gone to a prep school in New Jersey, and that he played water polo, and that he enjoyed hiking the Appalachian Trail with his friends. Uh, and so I assumed that aside from being black, that that he was a fairly typical Yale. Student. <laughs> Until you found out later, you use the term uh, fronting. Yeah, is that you use the term fronting? What what does that mean? Is that like passing? Uh, a little broader than passing, probably. Uh, you know, it, it's a it's a nerd scholar who who acts like he's not it's it's a rich person who acts like they don't have money um you know it's uh rob was really fixed on the idea of authenticity personal authenticity being real um and so uh he had a real visceral negative response to people he felt were not being authentic and it ate at him, especially in a in an environment like Yale, uh, especially when he had to do that himself for 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 jobs and scholarships. Um, there, there was a moment later on after graduation when he was having trouble uh, even finding a, a job, and and a friend of his said, "You know, Rob, cut your hair, like wear clothes that fit, don't swear, make eye contact." Don't use slang, and uh, Rob got really mad. Well, he lived. A, he kind of lived a, a double life. He had a challenging major, molecular biophysics and biochemistry, and yet he also sold marijuana throughout his college career. Um, uh, were you aware of the fact that he was doing this? Because he made you report a hundred thousand dollars selling marijuana at Yale to other students. Yeah, mostly other students, and again, we we lived in a pretty 
small, relatively small dorm room for for four years, and and he wasn't really uh, quiet about that. So I, I knew he had his little business, and I assumed that big business. Uh, it was something maybe he he knew how to do, and maybe even needed to do, and that he uh, might be helping out family or, or saving up for grad school or, or just making a safety net that he'd never had before. And I and a lot of people assumed that because it was marijuana and we lived in a college dorm that uh, if nothing else, it was safe. Hmm. Well, his tuition was fully paid, so he didn't need all of that money. He, uh, and he didn't really spend it either. So what was he planning to do with it? Do you know? Uh, he, what he said was, you know, he, he was going to, uh, that he was saving for grad school, which I don't know if that was totally truthful. Um, and I learned that a lot of uh, fellowships and, and a lot of opportunities, postgraduate opportunities that he, he was beyond qualified for actually pay you to uh, do them and do mm. research and get a degree. They don't pay you very much. Um, so uh, some, you know, a lot of people from a lot of different areas in his life were a little confused about his intentions there. Um, but Did he, he feel like... I know he aspired to travel the world, so that was part of it. Did he feel like a duck out of water in some ways? He often socialized off campus with friends he'd made on the custodial staff, um, which you uh, would have assumed most of his friends would have been other students. Uh, yeah, he 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 was a uh, he was a really bright light. Um, you know, it, it's easy to uh, sort of think about this sort of Hamlet figure trudging around campus resenting all the entitlement um, coursing through Yale scowling at people but um, <laughs> he wasn't like that he, he was really curious and he was friends with you know staff because he worked in the kitchen and he had a sort of an off-campus community and on campus he was friends with athletes and and hipsters and actors and um, you know a, a pretty a pretty wide net of people that were drawn to him because, like I said, he was curious and, and he had a really special way of making you feel safe and unjudged and, uh, and seen. Didn't everyone tell him not to go back to Newark after he graduated? Uh, what drew him back? Uh, was it that he, uh, he f did he feel a certain attachment that is kind of hard to understand? Yeah, there was an attachment. I, I try not to psychoanalyze him, um, even though obviously I, I hmm. wrote a book about him. Um, um, and yeah, not everybody, but there was a very large uh, number of people who, who told him, you know, you don't go back to Newark, but he did. You too good for Newark. Uh, well, the Newark is a is a big he, he city. Did, and, there's know, a, there's a Newark and a Newark, but uh, he he went back to his old neighborhood, the the uh, 
the Newark that was could be difficult for a young black man. But he taught science for several years at his former high school. Uh, that didn't work out. He invested in real estate, worked at the airport. Everything seemed to fail. So um, do we know why? He's a really bright guy. Um, why is, you know, the, the question, and I spent a lot of time with, you know, upwards of 100 people who knew him in all different ways, but mostly people who who loved him because he was hard not to love. Um, and, you know, the tragedy of the title, the short and tragic life of Robert Peace, the, the tragic part for me is that you have this guy who was beloved by, you know, all these people who would really just do anything for him, if anything to help if he asked. And he never asked he he uh, did not like to admit that he had anxiety or that he had need, um, as we sort of touched on before with the uh, other book. You know, his mantra yeah. was, I'm all good, it's all good. And, you know, his friends from Newark felt like they couldn't advise him because he was a brilliant guy who went to Yale. And friends like me from Yale felt like, uh, he must have it figured out because he'd overcome a lot more to get to Yale. So there was a vacuum that that he lived in. And um, he also he traveled, and he went to Rio and Croatia. So he had a complicated life. But he decided to, I guess, uh, to go back into business selling drugs, also selling guns as well as marijuana. Yes, that was a, you know, what happens in, in the kind of work I do is you, you try to be honest and, and play it as it lays and not really have an agenda going into it. But going into this project with with Rob, sort of the banner I was working under was that he was a good man. He, he didn't hurt anybody. Um, he helped a lot of people and at a certain point, kind of late in the research uh, process, if, if you want to call it that. Um, yeah, a, a old girlfriend of his called and told me this idea he'd had uh, not long before he died to, to sell guns. And the sole utility of a gun is to hurt people. So um, that was tough to sort through. Um, he never actually followed through on it. And what I was left with was, you know, how tortured and how adrift must this, you know, smart, beloved guy have been to even let his mind go there. Well, in 2011, he was murdered in what appeared to be a, a drug deal gone wrong. Has uh, his murder ever been identified? No. You mentioned that he was much loved. Uh, 400 people came to his funeral. So there were a lot of people who really liked Rob. Yeah, his funeral. Uh, I had never been to a funeral like that or experienced that particular kind of grief. Uh, but there were 400 or so people from 
all over the world there and underneath all those questions the the why and what could have been done um it was just people doing our best to celebrate him and the way you celebrate people is is you tell stories um most of the stories about rob were were really funny even joyous stories and i guess that's where it all started Jeff, we've run out of time, but uh, a reminder to my audience, I've been speaking with Jeff Hobbs about two of his books from Scribner. The early one, The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace, a brilliant young man who left Newark for the Ivy League. And most recently, the new one that just came out, Show Them Your Good, a portrait of boys in the City of Angels, the year before college. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you, Leonard. This was really meaningful. I, I really appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to producer Deborah Freeman, who prepared today's segment, and to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the work that they do throughout the week. If you're new to our program and you would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else podcasts are available. And you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLodge.com. If you want to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, I'd like to take just one last minute to ask you again for your support for the station. If you care about Leonard Lopez at Lodge and all of the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this thing going. Please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going to our website, give to WBAI.org, or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And if you sign up today to become a BAI buddy in the name of the show, you will get a free copy of the book we've been discussing, Jeff Hobbs, Show Them You're Good, A Portrait of Boys in the City of Angels, The Year Before College. And if you call in uh, to become a buddy or, or just to support the station on any level, uh, the, the first 10 calls will get a free download of my executive producer, Jesse Lentz's new album, The Originals. Uh, the, his group is called the Sweethearts of the Psychic Rodeo. In fact, we are listening to a little bit of it right now. Uh, we're off tomorrow, uh, but we will. We hope you can join us on Thursday when Dr. Sarah Hill will discuss her book, This Is Your Brain on Birth Control, The Surprising Science of Women, Hormones, and the Law of Unintended Consequences. Hope to see you then. <laughs>